Um, been thinking a lot this week. It's good when pastors do that if they're preaching, I think. Um, and I decided that Christians make pathetic sinners. Now, I don't mean that we can't sin. I just mean that we're pathetic when it comes to sinning. We can sin, and we do sin. But real Jesus followers always feel bad about it at some point. Even if we're not caught, we feel bad about it. There's just something inside of us. I don't know. Call him maybe the Holy Spirit. Who lets us know that we can continue this way and stay close to God. Which is why we're pathetic at it. We used to enjoy sinning just like everybody else. And sometimes, frankly, we can fool ourselves into believing that we could enjoy it again. We do this when we're tempted because uh, life isn't as easy as we thought it was going to be or as exciting as we think it ought to be. Then we make the wrong choice. And we do enjoy it for a while. Usually for a short while. But then comes the conviction. And then comes the sorrow. And then comes the wanting to, we just could undo what I just got done doing. Or not do. And then comes the desire for forgiveness from God. Because we know that we've disappointed Him. And we don't want to disappoint God because we love Him. Because He loves us. And His mercies are ever new. And we start again. We are loved as we ever were. And now... Not only are we loved as we ever were, but we're grateful for the fresh grace we're experiencing that brings us closer to God than we were before. And I think this is just scandalous. This is just scandalous, isn't it? I mean, to think that sinning by a Christian can eventually bring us more in touch with God's love. That's scandalous. I mean, if that were true, why don't we just sin more and more? Well, because we're loved by God. And we, because we love Him back. That's why. We want to make Him happy because He loves us. We want to make him proud that he's our dad. And also, because sin sucks. And we don't like what it does to us. And we don't like what it does to other people. And if we could just stop for a blessed minute and remember that before we make those choices, I think we'd all be better off. And so this is what the Paul what Paul the Apostle is trying to get us to understand in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. So, just so you know, that part of you that thinks 
that part of you that still thinks you can get some enjoyment out of sin is going to hate this message. going to hate this passage. And that part of you that has become wise, in which the Spirit dwells, where the truth of the Gospel resides, that part of you is going to love it. So expect to both love and hate this sermon. It's called uh, Stop in the Name of Love. And this is where it comes from. Who knows what band this is? Supremes, there you go. Thank you. Pray with me, will you? Lord Jesus, I um, need your help. It's always difficult to read and to meditate on passages like this one because it um, speaks to the worst parts of us, the parts that are yet unredeemed, those rooms in the house, those closets where we haven't quite let you in yet. Uh, and so I ask that you would give us grace to open our hearts to the truth that's in your word. I ask this for both those who, who follow you and those who don't. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to go through um, the passage once, and then we'll come back to this slide, and we'll go through it slowly again. Okay? Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's go back to verse 1. 
He says, follow God's example as do we love children, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word love occurs three times in that one sentence. Did you notice that? The model of love is Jesus himself. Because he laid down his life for us, we are to love others to the point of sacrifice. I'm not going to talk about Mother's Day except to say mothers are usually really good at this. A good mother knows how to lay her life down for her children. So if you ever experienced any of that, you get a little bit of a taste of what it's like to have God love you and what he's done for us. One way of imitating God is to have a forgiving spirit. Now, if you were an incorrigible child like I was, then your mother had a lot to forgive and keep on loving. I could go into some Mikey stories, but I've done that before and I won't do that now. Let's just say, if there was Ritalin back in the 1960s, I would have been on it. But I wasn't. So here's an encouragement for us to just imitate God. Our gospel is based in love. God is love, the scripture says. And so we're being rooted in the love of God. the, the, The religion known as Christianity is not about do's and don'ts. People wrongly think so. It's about being loved by God and loving Him back. That's what it's about. That's how we start off. That's important to remember for the rest of what He's about to say, which you're not going to like coming up right now. In verse 3, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed. The Greek words here are, uh, well, porneia, is what they translate as sexual immorality. Pornea, you know, we get the word porn, pornography from that Greek word. Um, But it just means basically any kind of bad stuff, any kind of wickedness, any kind of bad behavior, usually referring to some kind of sexual bad behavior. That's what it means. Um, The word impurity... This is a really difficult one in Greek. It just means not clean. Akatharsia. Just not clean. So go for it. Impure. Not clean. Something is not right. Something is not the way it ought to be. Sexually speaking, these words are linked in the Greek. They're a tandem in this verse. And so... Paul was talking about primarily sexual sin with these two words. And so uh, it means any kind of incest, any kind of promiscuity, any kind of sexual relationship with a prostitute, any kind of illicit sexual relationship. We know uh, this from other parts in the New Testament. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this, and just listen closely because it won't be up there. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Because of the temptation to porneia, to immorality, 
Each man should have his own wife and each, her own, each woman her own husband. In other words, before you marry, you are tempted to porneia. He's not talking about adultery. He's talking about sexual relationships outside of marriage. And then in Matthew 15, Jesus himself says this. He says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, pornea. Notice how he makes the distinction between adultery and pornea. Jesus himself does. Um, and so, Jesus is clear. Paul is clear. And I told you, you're going to hate this sermon. This is the part you're going to hate. Because we're just not there as Americans. All right? We are not there. Obviously, the Greeks weren't there either. Or Paul wouldn't be writing this stuff. So this has been going on for thousands and thousands of years, okay? So this is the general human condition. Let's not get too whacked out. Or feel like I'm pointing the finger at you. I feel like God's pointing the finger at the whole human race. And then he adds greed as a separate sin. And this can include sexual lust. You know, the woman who wants to sleep with all the guys. The guy who wants to sleep with all the girls. But it also can refer to any kind of drive to have more. Whether it's money or food or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's idolatry in the scriptures. It's like putting things higher than they ought to be, up near God's place. God's saying, basically, you want to be excessive about something? Be excessive about me. If you want to be greedy, be greedy about a relationship with me, because I'm jealous of my relationship with you. I'd like that. Now, Paul didn't quote the... Uh, Tenth commandment and say, Thou shalt not covet. Why not? Why didn't you say that? Why do you have to say it's improper for you to be greedy? I think it's because the only thing that counts in God's mind, and thus in Paul's mind, is your heart. He's not looking for a list of do's and don'ts. He doesn't want you to somehow blindly just adhere to some kind of rule. He wants your heart to be in this place. And an obedience that comes from a deep gratitude for the life you have in God. An obedience that comes from a desire to do God's will because you love God. That is a beautiful thing, according to Paul. Let's go on. He talks about uh, there. We go. Let me think. Go back. So this whole idea of sexual sin, I think it's important because you know. Sexual sin is, is something that kind of goes deep into ourselves, into our 
our flesh. I was reading an article. I don't know if you guys read this or not, but it's the Chimera effect. And um, women, at least women we know, like in their brains actually have the DNA of the guys they slept with. Is that freaky? I mean, it's a thing. Just look it up. The Chimera effect. C-H-I-M-E-R-A. And uh, so, yeah. so, So when the Bible says you become one flesh, it's not kidding. I mean, there's something that happens that's that's like DNA chromosome deep. Man, I just think it's nuts. It's amazing. Amazing. So something really significant happens when two people make love. And what Paul was saying, let's do that in the best way possible, the way that God intended, the way where... There's the most safety. There's the most security. There's the potential for the most joy. And that's in a committed, long-term relationship that we like to talk about as Christian marriage. The Bible is about us being on this kind of a level with God Himself. So there you go. Let's go to verse 5. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. If you're like me, you're reading this going, what the heck did he just say? Wait a minute, who inherits the kingdom? Like, because I could find myself in that list. I mean, if you want to expand the list, Paul's expanded the list in other letters. In Galatians, he adds sexual immorality, idolatry, and drunkenness. Impurity, debauchery, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, orgies. And then in Colossians he adds obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, evil desire, anger, malice, and lying. I mean, come on. Holy cow. These are the kind of people that are going to be excluded from the kingdom. Whoa! What are you talking about, Paul? Paul's making a distinction here between the Christians who have come to Jesus, who have committed to Him, who now have the Holy Spirit and are now following Him versus the people who haven't. Versus the people who do this kind of stuff without any kind of remorse, any kind of repentance, and the people who do. Because we've all done this stuff. All of us. Nobody is okay for heaven as far as I can check. But he's making a distinction. He's saying, do not be partners with them. If people's lives are continually characterized by these kinds of actions, chances are they're not following Jesus because Christians are pathetic sinners after all. Eventually, they come to their senses, they repent, and they try to do it right, even if they keep stumbling and falling. 
These are part of the earthly nature, the old self, the life you once lived. All the people whose lives have been scarred by one or more of the sins on Paul's lists, whose scarred lives have been healed and cleansed by the grace of God, who reject the continual encroachments of sin in their lives, who try to move in the power of the Spirit toward the coming kingdom of God, these are the people who will inherit the kingdom. He's just reminding them of what they already know, that these kind of behaviors are not appropriate for Christians because you're not part of that sphere anymore. You're not part of that world anymore. That's not who you are. This is about identity. Quit acting like you were not one of God's family. Start acting like the kid you are, part of God's family. It's a call to Christian identity, to be who you are. I mean, this passage assumes a strong contrast between believers and unbelievers. And let me tell you something. If there's there's no judgment, verse 6, if there's no judgment, then there's no need for salvation. Why would you come to church? If there's no judgment, then what we do doesn't matter. So Paul's just underscoring that which we already know. Let's go on to verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. This passage is about darkness and light. If you want to take people out of the dark, then they have to believe they're in the dark and there's some kind of light someplace. Paul is naming the darkness. People tend to take on the character of the sphere in which they live. You probably know people like this. They're stuck in a cycle of hookups weekend after weekend. They're stuck. They don't even like it much, but it's all that they know. And so Paul was calling for not just a withdrawal from that kind of life, but maybe even a confrontation. That by your very life, because you don't go out and do that stuff that you used to do, you're convicting people without even knowing it. Anybody experienced this besides me? You stop doing what your friends are doing and all of a sudden they feel like you're condemning them and you haven't opened your mouth. Well, what do you mean you're, you're only... You're not, you're not having, you're not, what do you mean you're not drinking? 
What do you mean you're not, you're not getting high? We, we always, what's the matter? You're going to sit here sober while I get high? Is that seriously what you're going to do? That, no, no, come on, come on, you got to, come on. You got to do this. You're convicting without even trying. And then if you say anything, you know, I've been watching you, and, and I really think your life would be a whole lot better if you just cut back on some of these activities. I, I, I mean, seriously, let's just go to a movie. You don't need to do what you normally do on Saturday night. Then, you're living as a child of the light, and you're exposing their darkness, and they don't like it. You didn't like it when it happened to you when the Christians around you were trying to pull you up out of the muck and the mire. They don't like it either. This presupposes you have contact with non-Christians. This presupposes you're not living in a Christian bubble someplace and never talk to anybody who's not a Christian. This is not condemning the people, it's condemning their deeds. This is why you've got to be on the perimeter of the kingdom. Not stuck inside some Marby Tower someplace. You're a light in the Lord, but there's a light, you're a lighthouse. On the edge. On the rocky edge. Showing people, hey, that way over there, that's destruction. Don't go that way, come this way. And then notice verse 12. Sometimes we can publicize evil deeds by our reactions against them. It is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. I mean, you start talking about some of the stuff that happens that's evil. And you're putting it out there in front of people. I mean, I know better than to get too specific. When counseling, pastoral counseling, with people who have been sexually abused. I mean, it's called triggering. It puts them back where they were. I don't want to do that. I don't want to... I'm not a trained, licensed, professional counselor. So I don't want to go there. I've seen people, honestly, become catatonic. Like just lights are on, but nobody's home. Can't drive a car. I've got to take them home. Because they were at the counselor, and... Um, the counselor started touching that stuff. That stuff that's been kept in secret in the dark and the hiding. See what I'm saying? I mean, we don't need to trigger people 
unnecessarily. You don't need to joke around and talk about and mention like, oh, you know what they were doing? Let me tell you what they were doing. That whole gossip thing, it's shameful to even mention some of that stuff. That's what Paul's saying. I believe he was inspired. Last two verses. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is interesting, because uh, the question is, um, so something that is exposed, when the Holy Spirit exposes something in you, some kind of darkness, that even that darkness can become a light. Let me say this again. When the Holy Spirit shines upon you, upon your darkness, and exposes your darkness, even your darkness can become light. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means it's cleansed, it's lit up, right? You're convicted, you repent. But the amazing thing is, is that those things, believe it or not, become your ministry in the future to show the glory of God. It's the people who were stuck in porn who can show those who are stuck in porn the way out. It's the people who were stuck in sexual immorality who can understand and empathize with those who are stuck in sexual immorality to help them get out. We have a phrase around here. It's called TSID, turning shit into diamonds. It's what God does. It's His best trick. It's His best trick to take your darkness and make it light. Absolutely amazing. For this reason it says, Get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. For everything that becomes enlightened takes on the quality of light. Light not only exposes, but light transforms. And this seems to be probably an ancient baptismal hymn, believe it or not, taken from Isaiah chapter 60. They probably used to sing this when people got baptized. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Isn't that what we do? Signify when we get baptized is we go under, we die, we are raised to new life as we come up out of the water. That's the significance. All right. We're all part of darkness before, all of us. Christians, when any sin is brought to the light, we, we disagree. Okay, fine. Expose it, Lord. Expose it. Even a hint of sin in my life, I want you to expose it. And then we're grateful. Which is why I don't understand some pastors nowadays who just don't give a shit about morality of the people in their congregations. I don't understand it. 
I was talking to one pastor of a fairly well-known congregation, and uh, this person, we were talking about sexual immorality, basically, and the question is like, so when do you actually say something to somebody in your congregation? Do you ever say anything to anyone in your congregation? I mean, do you care that much? How do you do this? The response was, no, I didn't even bother with it. I'm going, you don't even bother with it? Like, don't you care about your people? Don't you want them to experience the, the fullness and the joy and, and the light that God gives? I don't understand how this can't be a thing. How you can turn a blind eye to sexual immorality in your own congregation. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm a dad. I have kids. I'm not pleased about my kids sinning. They know where I stand. They know. I don't have to tell them again. I've got to love them even while they are still yet sinners. Why? Because God loved me while I was still a sinner. And when the light finally dawned on me, I went, oh my gosh. I don't want to live like this any longer. You see? I mean, I'm not trying to say that you need to be somebody's conscience. But neither am I saying you should turn a blind eye. Your Christian friends should know where you stand on their activity. If it's immoral or not immoral, they should just know. Now, what they do with that is between them and the Lord. They should know you love them enough not to make it an issue every single time you talk to them. I mean, people are so PC today, right? Oh, whatever you do is fine with you, and whatever I do is fine with me, and so let's just not get in each other's business. That is not what Christ is calling you to do. And here's the great thing about it. If you don't like where your life is, if you're one of those folks who's fumbling around in the dark trying to figure out what life is all about, you don't have to stay there. Christ is calling you. There's a better way to live. Focus on Jesus, not on the rules. I mean, it's not that you can't have sex. I mean, Jesus is saying it's not a good idea. But that's not the point. The point is there's something more. You're missing out on the big stuff, on the joy and the love and the life that Jesus has to offer. You're missing out on that part. You get into the club. Tina Ray said this. I like the way she said it. She says, you get in the club by admitting you can't do life on your own. You get into the club by admitting, you get into the Christian club, you get into Jesus' family by admitting you can't do life on your own. That it's unmanageable. And then once you accept that and you follow Jesus, you're going, wow, this is amazing. I'm a schmuck and Jesus still loves me. I mean, you feel filled with gratitude. And gratitude is what you feel when you believe God is for you and not against you. Gratitude is what you feel when you believe that God is for you and he's not against you. That he doesn't withhold any good thing. 
if God doesn't want me to engage in immoral sexual activity, then he must have something better for me. It's like my buddy and I talk about how there's not going to be any sex in heaven. I don't know if you knew that or not, but the Scripture plainly says that. There's not going to be sex in heaven. You want to know why? This is my buddy and I decided. Because it's too boring. That's why. (laughs) Heaven is way more exciting than sexual relationships. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But that's the truth. God's not going to take that away and not replace it with something way, 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 way better. Otherwise, it wouldn't be heaven. Thanksgiving says that in God I have all that is good for me. And I will not be driven to dishonor God to get a few great sexual sensations. I know this. I know this. I mean, you don't know this, but I know this. That I struggled with porn since I was in grade school. I found my father's stash. I was hooked. You know, all that brain chemistry stuff. And I wasn't even a puberty yet. I know what it's like to struggle with that. And I have won and I have lost and I have won and I have lost Many stages in my life. Let me tell you something. I'm much happier when I don't give in to that. Haven't given into it for a long, long, long time. Pleased to say. Does all sorts of bad things. I'll tell you what it does. It makes, in my case, it makes women into objects. I mean, and I don't do that. I don't treat women like objects. Why? One of the big reasons is because Jesus helped me to stop looking at porn a long time ago. And he cleaned my brain out. It doesn't work that way anymore. Not looking at porn has made me a better lover. Because I live in the real world with my wife. I don't live in a fantasy world that's created by directors and actresses and actors. Martin Luther said this, Although I am unworthy and condemned man, although I am unworthy and condemned man, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part, out of pure, free mercy, so that from now on I need nothing except faith which believes that this is true. Why should I not therefore freely, joyfully, with all my heart and with an eager will, do all the things which I know are pleasing and acceptable to such a Father who has overwhelmed me with his inestimable riches? Inestimable. It's a hard word to say. He said this 500 years ago. I mean, I wouldn't say it with those words. I would say the same thing now. Let me tell you something. That's what Paul was saying 1,500 years before in Ephesians 5. Same thing. The point is this. God wants us to obey Him because our minds and hearts have been renewed, because we're overflowing with thanksgiving. We can't enjoy sin anymore. At least not long term. I'll close with this story. 
I was in my late 20s. I was working in a steel mill. There was a young woman there who I thought was very attractive and extremely nice. And as time went on, I would talk to her here and there. I was in the mill as a laborer. She was up in the office, so I didn't see her a lot. But my mind went there. I was married. I had a couple kids. But, you know, things were kind of just, you know, mundane at home. You know what life is like when you have two little kids and you're trying to make ends meet. And this relationship was just easy. It was so easy. And, you know, I never held her hand. I never kissed her on the cheek or the lips. I never did anything except talk to her. And my mind was going in wrong places. I was imagining, what would life be like if her husband suddenly got into a car wreck and Mary died? I wonder if we would hook up. I wonder what it would be like to be married to this woman. And you know... As pleasurable as those thoughts were for a very, very short time, the Holy Spirit convicted me. Just slammed me. It was like WWF, like, like soul slam. Boom! Like, this is wrong. I don't know what to do. All of a sudden, I was convicted one day, and so... I called my pastor. Now, who calls your pastor when this is going on? You have to have the Holy Spirit at work in your life. I don't take any credit. I mean, why would you do that? I was terrified of the man. He was a lion in the pulpit. I thought, oh, this is not going to go well. But I have to tell somebody. So we go out, he and I, for lunch. Over the weekend, and I tell him what's going on in my heart and my head. And I'm feeling terrible. And I haven't done anything except what's between my two ears. I thought he was going to yell at me. Make me get up in front of the church and say the sin out loud to everybody and ask for forgiveness. I didn't know what he was going to do. He was so kind, so merciful. He got so vulnerable with me, talked to me about before he came to Christ, his own affair. He says, Mike, emotional affairs always precede physical affairs. Do you understand me? Emotional affairs always precede physical affairs. You've got to nip this in the bud. You've got to kill it right now. You can't do this anymore. Let me tell you what happened to me. He tells me about a 12-year affair he had with his secretary. And how painful that was when he came to Christ, realized he had to break it off with his secretary and then tell his wife. I remember thinking, oh man, I don't want that to ever happen to me. And I did it. I broke it off. 100% clean. Didn't talk to her again. If that's not the Holy Spirit working in my life to help make me a more joyful husband, a better father, 
have a more wonderful marriage. I don't know what is. God wants us to obey Him because our hearts and our minds are being renewed. And because He wants us to be overflowing with joy and thanksgiving. Because we are light in Him. Because it is now who we are. And it's what will bring us the most joy is doing what He wants. This is a matter of eternal importance. It means basically whether you're really born again, whether you're full of gratitude and joy, or freedom in your obedience. And it appears from this passage that God threatens terrible things if we will not come into His joy. I mean, I don't want to face judgment. You don't want to face judgment. If you're not following Jesus today, feel free to grab anybody who's a Christian that you know, me included, to talk about it. I'll tell you why it's so much better to follow Jesus than it is not to follow Jesus. been doing it for over 40 years. God wants us to be happy. God wants us to have good lives. And uh, this passage is proof. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word. Oh, sometimes I don't like it, Lord, because it's difficult to hear. But I know it's for our good. And so I ask you to open our spiritual ears and open our heart. Let your word go deep down into our heart and take root and produce a fruitful crop of joy and gratitude in our lives that will last from now into eternity. In Christ's name, amen.